Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you this week from the New York campus of Chong Kong Graduate School of Business, CKGSB. Let's hear you folks make a little noise. The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina, of course. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and at our website, SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo. I am joined, of course, by Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, whose hirsute countenance has consistently defeated even the most sophisticated Chinese selfie beautification apps. <laughs> but we love him anyway. And so does his wife, Faye, by the way, whose lovely face cannot be possibly improved by said selfie notification <laughs> app. So, Jeremy, please greet our audience both here and at home, won't you? Well, hi, everyone. Well, what do you want from my wife, Kaiser? <laughs> <laughs> that I cannot say on the air. Uh, I'm delighted to be here in New York and at CKGSB. And I have a long history, actually, with CKGSB. I, I did a lot of work for them in Beijing, sort of uh, writing. And we organized some events, actually, speaking events, yes. similar to this one. So this feels like a bizarro version of Beijing. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think I was on one of those events yes. that you did at CKGSP. That That's was fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, it's easy when you were watching China from the U.S. for your focus to fall mainly on the politics and the economics of the country. Um, as important as these two facets of China naturally are, it is crucial that we don't focus too much on them to the exclusion of what's happening in society and in culture. Uh, we believe that a truly holistic approach has always been necessary for anyone wanting to wrap their head heads around what's happening in China. Uh, China has, after all, undergone such incredibly rapid change, uh, compressing really the the whole experience that the West has taken multiple generations, maybe even a century, into uh, just the span of a few decades. Uh, the impact of rapid urbanization, of a sexual revolution, of sudden affluence, of a massive uh, man-made demographic skew, and of an explosion of technology is is something that hasn't been written about enough for China and probably never can be. And so today on our show, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by our dear friend Jiang Fan, who is staff writer for The New Yorker and who, are, by our lights, has been writing some of the very best pieces on contemporary Chinese society that we have seen. Jiang has been a guest on the show before, and more importantly, just recently, she starred in the pilot episode of Sub China's new cooking show. Yeah. I hope you've all seen that. A true claim to fame. Yes, your true claim to the, fame. Your true claim to fame. Um, uh, the show is called The Secret Menu, and uh, Jiang showed us how to make hot and spicy shredded potatoes. Jiang, we're really happy to have you back. I'm very glad to be here. 
Uh, so, Jayang, uh, we, we want to talk to you today about a couple of standout pieces uh, that you've written just in, in this year, uh, both of them for The New Yorker, of course, both of them reported from on the ground in China, and both of them about facets of social change in China. Uh, so, back in June, uh, you published an amazing story about mistress dispellers, people uh, working in a rather strange industry aimed at preserving marriages uh, by driving off the homewreckers, the xiaosan, uh, the mistresses. But uh, more than that, it's a fascinating exploration of the whole institution of marriage in China and how it has evolved and come under massive pressure during China's tumultuous changes since reform and opening began. So that's one of the pieces that we want to talk to you about. The other uh, is a very recent piece about China that looks at selfie beautification apps like the ones that Jeremy has broken many of uh, uh, <laughs> Now, these are selfie selfie optimized smartphones, you know, with, with cameras that that like automatically beautify your face, uh, supposedly beautify your face. Uh, the phenomenon of of Wang Hong, also of these internet celebrities uh, of live streaming and the strange world surrounding this company called Meitu and its technology, uh, it, the technologies that have enabled a culture of abject narcissism in China. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 really I mean to my by my lights just kind of horrifying. Uh, more than that though, this piece is a meditation on uh, changing values, on generational change. Uh, we encourage you all to read both of these stories if you haven't already. They both give you an awful lot to think about. So, Jiang, let's start with uh, Meitu. Uh, first of all, why don't you uh, tell us about this company uh, and its products, the phones, the apps, the video site, and maybe a brief history of the company's short life. And, and how did you get interested in writing about this uh, company? All right. So, I first experienced Meitu through the phones of friends, or actually, you know, backing up, I first began seeing on my Instagram these rather blurred, sort of fantastic-looking faces of friends of friends. And uh, there was a very strange flawlessness to their quality. Like, you couldn't pick out one feature that was wrong with their face. But when you saw the picture, you realized that it didn't look like something that you would just take with that with um, the native camera on my phone. So I wondered at first if all of China had just gotten plastic surgery in the few months that I um, have been living in the in the in the U.S. and was confused for some time. But when a friend pointed me to this app, I began to see how pervasive and influential it had become and how interlinked it has become to the culture of um, influencers and uh, internet celebrities. So I started looking at the company. It um, started in 2008, I believe, and it didn't really gain traction until 2011, I, I think, when it moved to a mobile platform. And that's when... You know, everyone um, ages, I think, 12 to, I want to say, 52 uh, began using it. And uh, it has just become, I think, nothing short of a cultural phenomenon. I mean, no one now, um, as I've been told, really can fathom posting a picture on social media without metooing or, you know, peeing for P short is short photoshopping. Um, in English, it doesn't quite work as well. <laughs> I know do anything before peeing. <laughs> um, uh, but you got to pee on your photographs uh, right, first. Right, 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 right. You, you got to pee on your them. face first. Exactly. Um, but uh, but in, in Chinese, it has become such 
a prominent part of uh, social media. And I visited the company earlier this year in June, actually. And uh, it's located in Xiamen, which is, uh, by Chinese standards, a relatively small city. But it's along the coast, and it has developed rapidly in recent years. And uh, the company is surprisingly young. I think the average age is um, mid-20s. And really, got us. I spent, you know, a little over a week there, and I really got a sense of how this company kind of worked inside and out. And the kind of beauty I experienced there is, um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a perfume shop, and it just, you walk in, and it just hits you. And there's so many different kinds, and it's so pungent that you can't tell if everything is supposed to smell extraordinary good or terribly, (laughs) terribly bad. And walking in, I mean, the employees are attractive. Everything is in kind of these pastel uh, shades. It's, it looks like you're supposed to be having a good time and experiencing the beauty of the place. But you can't help but kind of doubt your perceptions and experience every moment of the way, or at least that was my my, my, my So experience. they make these apps, they also make phones, right? Right. They also, um, so I was given... I was given a tour on my um, first day. They do, uh, they make a battery of apps. I think about five of them are most popular. Beauty Plus, Makeup Plus, Beauty Camera, Selfie City are some of the names, and they give you an idea of what they're used for. Please. <laughs> um, and, but most of its revenue at this point actually comes from its phones. I think it makes up for, you know, an overwhelming uh, percentage of its revenue. And, uh, these phones are designed to allow you to take extraordinarily um, air quotes, right, enhanced uh, selfies. And they are uh, massively popular with the Chinese population. And and are people buying two phones or or, or are they using the May 2 phone as their main phone? I think they save up for the May 2 phone. I think they might start with kind of what, you know, we have, you know, the... The the, The cheap Apple phone. Right, 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 exactly. Apple (laughs) 7 or 8, right. But but I think uh, I was in a May 2 store in Xiamen and um, I was was there when a few women walked in and uh, you should have just seen their faces. I mean, this was a... These were two young mothers who actually came in with their strollers and they said... I can't believe I have never discovered this before. This is this is absolutely life changing. And these are not you know cheap phones. Um, I'm, uh, but they immediately said, "Well, this is you know I I I, I know what I'm going to be asking uh, my husband for this uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> during the holiday season." So w- one of the things this has enabled or it has uh, played a part in is is live streaming. Mm-hmm. And you you talk about this quite a bit in your article. Do you could you tell us a little bit about the people who make money as live streaming celebrities? People People like Honey CC, who's featured in your piece. Right. I mean, the live streaming culture in China has grown so swiftly and extraordinarily in the past few years. And I think it's important to point out that it is pervasive throughout the culture, but that there are also different tiers of uh, live streaming. Meipei is part of Meitu. It's one of the products, and it is a live streaming platform. It's supposed to be 
sort of this hybrid between, I want to say, kind of Instagram and Facebook, where you just upload your short, short videos, but you can also stream on there. Honey CC is actually one of the more culturally sophisticated um, of these live streamers. Oh, and just for, the, for those who haven't read my piece, I um, I, I start my article ta- um, by talking about Honey CC, which who is this 27-year-old web celebrity. But um, there are other platforms like uh, Kuaishou that really um, live stream bizarre, absurd, very sensational, jackass-esque videos. I mean, you know, over the, uh, I think, past few months, two of the most popular ones are um, stuffing firecrackers uh, down your underwear for a young man. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, 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 he live streams this and just exploded uh, on the web. And, Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and also wasabi eating contests. Oh, God. And you can, um, you, can, you can imagine how that might unfurl. But that, that is one spectrum of uh, the live streaming Platform and then overwhelmingly there um, there's a breed of you know very attractive women who really are just coquettish in front of a camera and that can go on for hours sometimes days and uh, usually it works by the live streamers earn money when you in real time shower them with uh, monetary donations gifts that kind of pop up on, from the bottom <laughs> that spring up from their phone you know every time you kind of give them uh, money or, you know, in the form of, you know, tiny emoticons of bouquets of flowers and coins. And you get to ask questions, I think, um, when you um, when, when, when you give money. And uh, it has just become immensely popular with uh, Chinese youth. Right. This is the inspiration for our new paid Slack channel, right, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have yeah. you dancing coquettishly right. <laughs> in front of the camera, Kaiser. Right. Okay. Yeah, we'll, I'll shake, I'll, I'll twerk. Long hair is very popular. Um, on long black hair. <laughs> long black Hair, long, long, beautiful hair like yours, uh, uh, Kaiser, is very okay, popular yeah. on. Um. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> Kaiser's oh, band did look for a shampoo uh, sponsor for many years. <laughs> yes, I know that. That's just a lie. <laughs> That's a scurrilous lie. <laughs> now, I have tried uh, not to be one of those people uh, who talks about millennials, whether in China or in the United States. Um, I, I don't talk. I don't. I don't like to roll my eyes uh, when I. I, 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 I Actually, I do the eye rolling when I hear other people talking about millennials. There's always these damned articles constantly being written about, you know, millennials, this and millennials, how they're bringing about the end of the world. Um, and, you know, cause I remember people uh, in the baby boom generation grousing about us, generation X, people born in the sixties and the seventies on uh, blaming us for all manner of ills. Um, and you know, it's the same in China. It's, you know, and so all uh, people are always, always saying, uh, the next generation, this and that. And so I'm very suspicious of people, my own generation, um, you know, people who say the same thing about the millennials. I think there's something kind of disingenuous about it, but Jiang, you are a millennial yourself, right? I'm the late end of a millennial. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, but you, I'm going to take what you say a little more seriously. So I'm going to get right this. Am I projecting or do you also regard this whole phenomenon of abject uh, of, of, of narcissism, of, of this this runaway vanity as something deplorable, as horrible, as pathological, as symptomatic of something just like deeply wrong with the kids these days? I confess that I may be reading a little into what you've written, <laughs> but I, I, I kind of couldn't help but suspect that you also hate them. <laughs> Um, I think that's a, that's a great question. I'm glad you ask it because I think my piece can perhaps read that way that I am, 
you know, passing very severe judgment on this generation, which I really don't mean to be doing. I mean, I, I do like my pieces to have a viewpoint. And a lot of times I hope my hope is that through the documentary style of a long form piece, you see the facts as they accrue and the vantage point that I am shooting this verbal documentary from. But I also think that the Chinese millennials are responding to their circumstances and they're the products of a very specific time. And in a little bit, I'll get into how that's a little bit different, I think, from millennials here in the States. But in China, you have just vertiginous development over the course of the past, um, you know, three, four decades. And in Chinese, you know, for the past century in China, everything has been a revolution. And you see the pendulum just swing from, you know, uh, one one end to the other. And for Chinese youths, I think, they are responding to this cultural of materialism, you know, as you pointed out, that they've been steeped in, and also a certain sense of helplessness mm. and lack of control. Mm. Um, whereas in the U.S., for many of our millennials, yes, you know, the economy hasn't looked great for many of us, and there are, you know, uh, many, many flaws with our uh, politicians. But there is at least some hope of voicing our discontent. You know, you might not make money from it, but there is, there are other outlets, I think, for um, for self-expression. Whereas in China, I think you have, you know, a generation of youth still very much steeped in the culture of collectivity. And you have them, you know, looking longingly at the, you know, flagrant materialism, and also feeling there's such a gap for so many of them between what they want for their lives and what they're what they're able to achieve. And here I'm talking about kind of the, you know, the very hierarchical nature of Chinese uh, culture and Chinese politics, the sense that, um, you know, if you are not born into a certain echelon of privilege, it is not something that you can work yourself up to. And I think all of that really creates this crucible of um, hopelessness, but also reckless pragmatism. And what I mean by that is you feel, well, if there is no hope for me to achieve anything of worth through traditional avenues, and by traditional, I mean through schooling or through, you know, working Getting really a good hard. job. Right, 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 right. Kind of the Horatio Alger model. Then what, you know, then how do I turn a quick buck? And then I think that leads you to the live streaming, to the internet reds, this very radical, but I think incredibly actually sensible way of uh, making money and making sure that at least I am selling something and ensuring cash flow today, tomorrow, this week, if it's not even if you know, I don't know when when, when the good times will end. Oh, that's interesting because it, it sounds like you know it's aspirational. It's kind of egalitarian, right? Um, you can suddenly right. everyone can be as beautiful as everyone else. Right, right, right. I mean, I talk about this democratization of beauty, and you know, and May too with these, um, you know, what we could regard as rather bizarre, you know, abs- just absurd seeming dystopian apps really does. You know, it says everyone. I mean, that's their motto: everyone can be beautiful. Huh. Uh, another factor that I think is relevant is the 
uh, entertainment and media situation in China where, I mean, you know, there's a, there's quite a lot of entertaining television now. It's different from it, the way it was 10 or 15 years ago. But still, everything is so stage managed and scripted. Very uh, much so. Of course, on the TV, but even on the internet, you know, yes. you look at the news. It doesn't matter if you go to QQ News or Baidu News. Mm-hmm. Uh, every day, it's the same stories. You know, mm-hmm. if you go to the central state media, it's the same stories. Right. Um, this is one of the few media forms in China where the possibility of something really going wrong or unexpected happening exists. Do, do you think that might be some of the, tr- the, the 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 interest there? I mean, yes. I mean, certainly. I think those tuning in for the firecrackers and the underwears, hoping something will go. You know, a part of them. I mean, I'm hoping something went wrong with the firecrackers. I want to see went that wrong before he even started. <laughs> <laughs> catastrophically wrong. And recently, actually, just a few days ago, I don't know if you read this, but there was, um, I think, a daredevil um, a high-rise yeah. climber. What's his name? Yeah, right. The, the rooftop. Young Mr. Wu, the rooftopper who died. The rooftopper who died. And he, I think he was live-streaming. Yeah. So yeah, maybe was... we should just explain that word, rooftopper. It's a young <laughs> men, usually, who cl- daredevils who climb to the top of skyscrapers. Without safety nets. Without <laughs> safety nets <laughs> right. ropes and take photos of themselves. And... Uh, right. And they can gain, I mean, and this is very much part of this culture that we're discussing. I mean, they can gain a very quick following, a massive following very, very quickly because I think people are attracted to kind of to the danger that they vicariously experience. And uh, and I think tragically, I don't know if this is true, but apparently he was um, he, he did he took on this particular challenge in order to earn 15,000 so that he could propose to his fiance. Right. And also um, help his, I think. His mother his was sick. sick mother. Was oh, right, right. Read, yeah. His, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds mother. typical. <laughs> Yeah, but no, I mean, this is not something new. I mean, the 1920s in America, it was just like this. I mean, there were all these barnstormers. There was, all, you know, th- this. there were pole sitters. There were people right. who would just do all sorts of daredeviltry, uh, people walking out on the wings of airplanes. Or, right, uh, right. Was, okay, so to get back to the narcissism, I mean, how, right. how, how widespread is, is this kind of narcissism we're talking about? Or narcissism. Is, right. is it limited to... Um, a, a vain and superficial fringe, or, or is this culture really going mainstream in, in mid-sized Chinese cities? Yeah, I think the narcissism is um, interesting to unpack here because when we, you know, the term usually refers to um, to you know, real, the, the, you know, the picture I see in my head is just you know a, per, a person pairing for hours at a time into a mirror, and it seems quite self-contained. But in China, I think this narcissism. Can pay, and I think that um, the economic dimension of the narcissism really um, is important to um, why it has become so much part of the culture. And also, I think it's less stigmatized than it is here in the U.S. because it seems so prevalent in the culture. It seems like you know the, the selfie culture um, in China is uninhibited. It is almost glorious. Everyone posts daily selfies and it is not looked down upon. It just seems to be a way of letting the world know how you're doing. So I think in China, there is a recalibration in that sense. And it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, Absent other moral uh, uh, moorings, right? Yeah. Moorings, controls. It's um, who is to say that this is 
something even to be stigmatized. Who am I harming when I'm posting about a dozen selfies of myself? Right. And yet I must think that people in their parents' generation must find this abhorrent. So, I mean, I, I used to think, I've lived in China, as you all probably know, for most of my adult life. And uh, for the last 30 years, you know, hanging out with people who, my age, people who were born in the 60s or in the, in the 70s, these people, I always thought, were you know had the biggest generation gap between them and, and their parents. But now, I... I Look at this generation underneath and think it must be even bigger. I mean, the kids I hung out with, sure, they had, you know, long hair and they wore blue jeans and listened to rock and roll, but the, you know, they still took care of their parents and they worked hard and they, they went, went to school. They did all, all that stuff. And these kids, I mean, so the people you profile like Abner and, 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 <laughs> oh, Abner. Abner and, 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 and Honey CC, do they represent maybe even a more radical break with, tradition or or do they somehow fit into it as well? Again, very good question. You know, I ta- I asked both um, Abner, who is this, just to give listeners a uh, brief background, He was he's this 19-year-old in my piece. He is enrolled in college, but doesn't go except for the exams. He sees his life as completely pinned to live streaming and being being an internet celebrity and, 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 and regards schooling as completely senseless. And I had a long conversation about his parents and how how they see his life trajectory. And he said something that was, to me, deeply disturbing and saddening. He said, when I was growing up, my parents, his parents ran this mobile phone shop. He said that apparently was very uh, time-consuming. He said they spent all their time there at this mobile phone shop. They didn't really take care of me. I don't remember the last time they cooked me a meal. And uh, all they've ever done is... Um, just nag. And what do I owe them, really? Hmm. You know, for all this talk of filial piety, what do I owe them? I don't think of them as, as having done their duty as parents. Wow. And that really struck me. I mean, with Honey CC, she comes from, her parents were divorced when she was very young. She didn't really see her dad very much. And her mom, I think, was um, just a, a, a homemaker. And uh you know, she said that her mom was encouraging whatever she did that would make money for the family. So, you you know, so these, I think, older values, they are still in the culture of, you know, piety and of, you know, looking after the elderly. But the economic transformation has been such that um, the younger generation feels a different sense of obligation and responsibility to their elders, if that makes sense. It's that that brutal pragmatism that you talked about earlier. Right, exactly. Exactly. And this sense that relationships between parents and child has become quite fractured. And I think, you know, they've become quite remote from each other. There, There isn't really as much, you know, they might live in the same household, but because of what they are all doing frantically to earn money, they're really not spending very much time together, you know, as in the olden days. Right. right. So I, I somehow imagine that Xi Jinping doesn't see beautification apps <laughs> as a central part of the Chinese dream. Um <laughs> But I mean, more than that, I, you know, one would think that this type of behavior would not sit that comfortably with a, a party that is, you know, quite puritanical uh, and, uh, you know, that for decades has been uh, telling people to, you know, work hard, to be humble, not to be vain, not right. to spend money on, you know, consumer. 
uh, that's, you know, I think the party's relationship to what is going on in the youth culture is quite vexed um, and more complicated than we would think. Because on the one hand, when you have a regime like Xi Jinping's that is becoming more authoritarian, it feels like, you know, uh, uh, by the day, you do not want the youth to be channeling their discontent toward more political channels. You know, you want them to be, you want them to be satisfied enough that they are just that they stay kind of, you know, within a certain segment of um, society. So May, May too is the opium, the new opium. <laughs> mass I mean, that, 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 that is one <clears throat> argument. And others, and I just want to kind of push back on my own argument there. And others have said, well, no, I mean, the youth, it's not even that uh, they are deliberately kind of censoring themselves in any way or choosing, you know, the opium. It's that, I mean, part of it is also that they don't find politics just inherently interesting, that they're not even kind of... Oh, that sounds right to me. I mean, most people who I meet in China are so absolutely uninterested in in anything political. They would just rather you talk about anything about politics. Right. Well, I think there's just the sense of it's so irrelevant to me. And I think the Chinese are exceedingly pragmatic in a sense. It's like, what can I relate to and what can help my life become better in measurable ways. And politics, I mean, you know, how, what is the human rights of other people? I mean, how does that affect how does that affect me today right, right now? So what do they relate to? So what are the cultural touchstones for this? I mean, I I've got to imagine there are things in the culture uh, that are sort of the, the, the nuclei right. around which these th- these right. phenomena are congealing. So, like, you know, it's got to be like the Korean boy bands with all their, mm-hmm. their kind of uniform appearance, that androgyny. That it's got to be it, like movies like Shao Shudai, uh, Tiny Times, right. right? I don't know if you've seen this, which is, is just sort of sex in the city without any cleverness. And, or sex. <laughs> or, or sex. sex so. uh, yes. And um, and a lot of, you know, these um, these, like, 100 episode TV dramas right. that oftentimes show exceedingly attractive people leading very glamorous city lives. Right. And I think they do create an aspirational model that rarely do I really see a reflection of reality in on TV or Unlike in Unlike in America. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, there is, I, I just don't ever see a movie like Moonlight, and I know that's for, even for, for for the U.S., you know, that's that, that was a triumph. Yeah, but yeah. In, in China, I just, I, I don't see those social themes being grappled with in quite the same way. Um, you, you spend quite a bit of time with these Wang Hong, these internet celebrities. I mean, they are pretty ridiculous, but are they any more <laughs> ridiculous than, you know, the Kardashians or our president or... Um, <laughs> You know, right, right. I think our that's pres- a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, I I think the difference here. I mean, you're, you're right. I think the Kardashians really are. I mean, they are kind of your 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 proto Wang Hongs, your proto um, <laughs> internet celebrities, but. Uh, they are they are one channel that you can tune into, and they are a very powerful one, and it can feel like they've taken over all the. You know, celebrity magazines and, uh, you know, uh, uh, gossip channels. But in the U.S., at least it feels to me, if you like, you know, the Kardashians fundamentally don't interest me. And uh, I can go for days without having to kind of engage with them in any way. 
in China, I think it's almost like it's almost like the pollution. Um, if you can indulge me, this meta- <laughs> as a, a metaphor, it just descends, you know, really kind of into your breathing space. The Wang Hong, the Wang Hong culture, <laughs> right? I mean, it just feels like it's part of the fog of the culture, and you can't see the clouds. Like in China, I always lament you can't ever see a blue sky. I mean, at least in Beijing, it makes me. You can't ever go online and not be inundated in in Wang Hong Bo. Right. That there there's some sense, especially I mean, I think for the younger generation, I'm thinking for like the post nineties, um, for some of the post eighties, you know, if you are not part of that culture, if you're not worshiping kind of or at least following closely the lives of Kardashian-esque characters. Do you even exist? I mean, are you even participating in <laughs> the <laughs> in the in the cultural conversation? And this, um, and just one other thing, I think that's interesting to to point out is the celebrity worship in China really does, I think, take it to a new astronomical level. And I know, I mean, here in the U.S., you know, we have um, Us Weekly. We do have, you know, various, um, uh, you know, tabloids and tabloids. Uh, you know, I, I read them at checkout stand uh, stands. I'm sure, you know, m- many people do. But in China, it feels, you know, when I talk to young to young people, it feels like there's there's a fundamental way in which their existence is just grafted onto celebrity culture. Wow. And to me, that's terrible. That's disturbing. I mean, you hear about, you know, young girls feeling suicidal when their idol, you know, has a girlfriend. And that is, I mean, that is commonly reported. I mean, I don't know how many of them actually, you know, leap out of windows, but there's there, there's just, there is actually, you feel it, communal despair when uh, idol, especially I think the idol, uh, you know, like a young male star. They're called xiao xian rou, like yeah, a little. <laughs> I like little to call fresh the, pieces of meat. <laughs> little fresh pieces of um uh, of of meat, exactly. They're like little soup dumplings. Right. Um, uh, when when they pair up, the utter despondence of millions of you know young women. I mean, it's it, there's something very psychologically disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Lu Han, when Lu Han exactly, has a girl, you know, right. yes, Lu Han, Lu Han is one so, of. So I mean, you're talking to somebody who's got a 13 year old daughter with a bedroom covered in Korean boy band posters. So I know what uh, what, what you speak. And, and I but, seem to recall your son said he wanted to become a YouTube star when he right. grows up. So. Yeah. My son wants to be a YouTube celebrity. Just like, you don't want to be a podcaster? Come on. What's wrong with dad's profession? Wait, but it is not all that dire, right? I mean, I mean there, there's, there are people like Papi Jiang, right? You guys, anyone know Papi Jiang? Yeah. Right. I mean, right. it's just like fantastically talented. And she's not. I, I think that she has completely resisted the blandishments of selfie beautification apps or of, of like frivolous live streaming. She does cutting very funny, sharp social commentary and I mean, satire. And then she's very, very bright. So there's a lot of, I mean, there are, there's other good bright spots out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, I mean, she, I would, what I would like to encourage and what I'm encouraged by is a diversity in the ecosystem of live streamers. And Papi Jiang, when I, when I do mention her name, you know, to live streamers, um, in China, they're like, oh, but she's so like 2005. 16, 2015, oh, like okay, she is yeah. so passe. But I, but you're right, Kaiser, that I, you know, her popularity is a testament where, you know, uh, there are still people with reasonable 
taste on there. <laughs> right, right, right. But all yeah, right, that you know that 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 um uh, you can appeal on something other. So than let's talk about Meitu's plans. I mean, I believe they're trying. They want to expand abroad. Is that got any yes. chance of succeeding? Uh, when I when I talked to the, uh, CEO, um, his last name is Tsai, He told me that he hoped in uh, five years, eighty percent of the world will be using uh, Meitu and uploading their Meitu faces onto the internet, and that's um eighty percent of the world population. I mean, that seems well, you know, spectacularly ambitious to me. But 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 they are, <laughs> but they are uh, very much looking overseas at the United States. Well, I see one gigantic problem that they're going to face when they try to expand into, for example, the United States. And and you bring this up. I mean, it's very problematic, and that's the fact that that uh, there are race or at least class issues that are intrinsic to the assumptions that they build in to people's aesthetic preferences. One of the people that you talk to says, "Oh no, it's already quite established that Chinese ideas of beauty are right. for uh, for fair skin and right. uh, double eyelids and high uh, nose bridges right. and you know all the things that you have." Right? <laughs> But, but no, I mean, but, and and I think that, that we've already seen instances where they'll they, it will automatically lighten people. See, there are some beautiful women of color sitting in in the audience here tonight. Right. And what would it do to their faces? I mean, that, that's it's, it's right. That is a question. Have they been thinking about they this? They have been thinking about that. I mean, they they're they're rolling out kind of the Euro American wave, and because um, <laughs> well, that's that's better, <laughs> right? And that is um, that is. According to you know made to staff and officials, that will bend toward more kind of naturalistic, you know, more nuanced um, uh, metufication. But oh, is that metufication? Metufic- <laughs> oh my god! Oh. Uh, um, but they also point out certain things, you know, certain parts of um, you know Western Mandy. You know, a one made to staffer was like, "What's up with you know the American obsession with teeth, like white, straight white teeth?" You know, in China, it's um, one of the la- you know even when they're fixing their photos, teeth whitening. You know, the Chinese would prefer having paler skin or to you know whiter teeth if they had if they had a but that, but some May, May Too folks are telling me that having white teeth in China, in the U.S. seems really the um, sine qua non, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right? So uh, you know they are sort of finding they're picking kind of those points of vanity in our culture and not fixating as much on kind of you know the the the, the skin the, lightening. This is skin lightening. Though they tell me that you know if they can you know they're coming up with some you know, bronzing apps. You know that the Americans are uh-huh. obsessed uh-huh. with right. their tan physique. Donald Trump, <laughs> the, uh, Agent Orange. So, um, one last question on on uh, the Meitu story before we move on to the other one, Jiayang. Uh, can you tell us about your own consultation with a cosmetic surgeon and how that whole episode made you feel? <laughs> <laughs> one of the more surreal episodes in my life, as someone with I think an ordinary, um, uh, unexceptional amount of vanity, I sort of went in. Thinking. <laughs> As someone who I think is vain to an acceptable degree, okay. um, uh, I were so I'd like to think I went in there um, thinking that I would just be given a basic assessment of you know what tune-ups were needed but it seemed like i went in there you know and they just wanted to kind of trash like the, the entire vehicle that is <laughs> that is you know they, they, they really you know what um, was wrong with the vehicle well, well, I, I, they took chalk to your face and i love that line you said yeah, i think she said something like uh 
that after half an hour, you, your face looked like a military <laughs> map after a long, involved Yeah, late stages campaign. of battle. Yeah, yeah. Yes. The late stages of the battle. Right. right. And I think the, the, the surgeon was very conscientiously just doing her duty. I mean, she really felt that for me to become truly beautiful, there needed to be a wholesale overhaul. And that was quite... and. I would like to point out, I mean, you know, it was comical, you know, it is comical now, but in that moment, when you're in there and this doctor, um, you know, with years of medical training is telling you all the ways in which your face needs to be improved, I would like to emphasize that it kind of does, it does shake you to your core. You, you mean, you think, you know, do I look like a gargoyle? Like, you know, am I, you know, have I been just walking around not knowing kind of <laughs> the various, I'm afraid so, dear. <laughs> the various ways that, um, uh, uh, my life, you know, has been perhaps uh, held back by, you know, my, 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 well, you, you know, why the little children run away when they see you now. But that was, um, that was really informative in that sense. And I can, I can imagine how when you live in a culture where it can be the surgeon, you know, not only the surgeon, but, you know, other, you know, your your employers, you know, people who are interviewing you for jobs, your um, romantic prospects are all evaluating in that way. Mm. It can be incredibly, I think, toxic to your sense of self. And when I was there, she said, like, her starting estimate was like 30000 for like, you know. Yuan. U.S. Uh, dollars. U.S. dollars. U.S. dollars. For like, for me to become, you know, kind of minimally acceptable. But think and how then quickly would, you could make that up as a long haul. Oh, yeah. you know, and then, you know, and then I walked out of there for a second just thinking, oh my God. And of course, I was in this plastic surgery hospital. They say they're not a clinic, that they're kind of a comprehensive hospital. And everyone there is preternaturally good looking. I mean, they do look like they walked out of magazines. And you're unsure whether that was by virtue of the surgeries that they've had, if they were, if they were born that way. And, you know, there Nobody's was a... born that way. <laughs> And there's a part of me that thought, wow, like, you know, if like if all these, you know, gates to my life can be opened by, you know, spending like thirty thousand dollars, like is that is you know, is that worth it? Like if, and it does cast doubt that I think even non-Chinese are, are not impervious to. Well, the way that this story connects uh, to the other story that we want to talk about, at least in my mind, is is through what both stories say about women. Uh, and their status in contemporary China. Uh, what these stories say can't really, you know, be seen as, as good news for women either. I mean, you have infantilization and objectification and this fetish for youth and the overemphasis on beauty that we've been talking about, this rampant materialism we've been talking about. It's all very depressing. Uh, in this story that you published back in June, uh, you wrote about these mistress dispellers and you focused on this company called uh, the Wei Ching group and on a private detective. So tell us who they are and, and what it is that they do. Right. In Shanghai last year, I visited this mistress dispelling agency. I mean, they're kind of a marriage consultancy slash mistress dispelling agency. And they're in the business of saving marriages from partners that are sort of at their wit's end. And they use a variety of tactics to rescue these uh, unions, some which may seem more bizarre to us than others. And 
one of the more extreme is, you know, seducing the the mistress away from your philandering husband, either by attractive job prospect in another city, so you create distance, or maybe, you know, starting a rumor about the mistress that gets back to your husband, or in the case of the, you know, mistress dispeller that I interviewed, he visited the mistress and, um, <laughs> and you know, became friends with her, invited her to a possibly romantic weekend outing in, a, in another city, and then took these, you know, incriminating photographs uh, with her and then sent them back to the husband. Leading what happened to good old threat of physical violence? I mean, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm calling old fashioned, but <laughs> I mean that, that, that is one of the, that is one of the tactics. But it, that that is um you know that is discouraged not for any moral moral reasons, but just because, because it gets a little right. messy. Right. It gets messy. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but uh, but yeah, it has you know it, it it has become an industry in its own right <sighs> in China and uh, um an increasingly popular one because marriages um are not only about Love um, in, in and having you know a steady life partner, but about financial security in China, and uh, you are sometimes saving these marriages not just so you can have a husband, but so that you can really secure you know your assets for the rest of your life. So, I mean, how much does this uh, the existence of this industry? What does it say about the state of marriage of matrimony in, in China? I think. Crisis is a word that comes to mind, but I think um, I fear that it gives um, readers the idea that it's something that's quite short term. When really, just like the culture, just like you know, in um, in 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 my May two story, the history goes back much further. China is and has been a very patriarchal society. And uh, up until the communist takeover in 49, marriages were primarily arranged by parents. So the idea of dating, of or free love, was a completely um, free love, meaning finding your own partner, you know, your par- <laughs> partner, um, is, uh, is a completely alien concept. And in... 51, when the first marriage law was enacted, that's when, at least on paper, you could choose your own partner. It was very much that. It was on paper. I think for a entire country of people to acquaint themselves with, you know, what it is to find your partner, to do this very strange, to involve themselves in this, you know, strange dance of dating. I mean, that is not something that that is not a decree that you can you can make. Yeah, but I felt like in by the 19 early 1990s, say, there's there'd been progress. I mean, people really were sort of dating and, and I mean, everyone was more or less equally impoverished anyway. And so you didn't it, it wasn't this nakedly transactional nature to, to marriage. I mean, it feels like it slipped back into it only later. And oh. and now, I mean, now I think we're, we're at this point where, I mean, you mentioned in, in your story that, that they tell you secure the marriage to secure the assets and secure the assets to secure happiness. So, I mean, divorce, right? You'd think, why don't these men just leave, these women leave their philandering husbands?
reasons. I mean, but it, it seems like it seems to be a foreclosed as an option to many women for basically economic reasons. So they can't divorce these awful cheating bastards because there are property laws that favor men, that most of the real estate is still held in the man's name. Is that, and yes. wh- how is that allowed to ex- persist? Yes. I mean, I think that goes back to, again, the Confucian sense of patriarchy that's embedded in the culture that then becomes codified. Sometimes I think even unwittingly, because, you know, the communists, you know, Mao for ever since China's quote unquote liberation was all about women holding up half the sky. I mean, China for so long has been a country of sloganeering. And there's this sense that, you know, if I proclaim it, it will be so. But in, in an institution as complicated as, as, as marriage and a culture where sexism has been ingrained for so long, it's very, very hard, I think, to um, to only use laws to kind of arbitrate. But I feel like there are a couple of legal fixes, though. I mean, one of them is this. this, this it was only fairly recently that they, they passed this law that any property acquired by a man before marriage reverts to him in the case of divorce. Right. And then there's the other thing. It's like there's no spousal support. I mean, I was on my way over here. Uh, I was you know, at a Lyft driver, Ralphie, 4.9 stars, really good guy from <laughs> East Harlem. Uh, and he was telling me he is separated and, um, you know, he's griping, grousing about his the spousal support that he has to pay and the child support he has to pay. And, you know, he's a Lyft driver. I'm sure it's, it's, it is hard on him, but this is the right thing, right? I mean. Right. And when I talk to lawyers, Chinese lawyers, they say that this is no spousal support and having assets revert back to whoever name it was held under before marriage is an act of gender equality. The thinking is that why should, you know, why should one, why should one spouse ever support the other, you know, after they are divorced, you know, divorced and they just go back to kind of separate entities and they should be you should be able to support themselves. And also, you know, in terms of the reversion of property rights back to the person who held the property before marriage, I mean, for the lawyer, you know, she said, well, that seems only right to me. I mean, it belonged to that person before marriage. It should belong to that person, you know, after marriage. But I think kind of intertwined in, in all of this is the you know traditions of the man buying the property before he can even begin looking for a wife that 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 kind of goes back you know uh, you know millennia and the, the expectation on the part of a lot of women that exactly. this be so is perpetuating this problem then. exactly yeah. and that a lot of women will oftentimes give some of their own money to the man so that he can buy the property and, and not lose face and not lose face I mean losing face is a huge is a huge thing and you know and China has not been a country of law for very long so so many of those transactions are made off paper. So they're not recorded. So, you know, then when you're married, you know, the the, the apartment is wholly under your husband's name. And how do you go to a judge and say, oh, yeah, but like at 2 a.m., you know, the night before we decided, like, I was going to transfer all my money to him. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't stand up in the court of law. Yang, what's your sense of how socially acceptable sort of mistress culture has become in China? I mean, I'm just thinking of the last year I was in Beijing, I went to this fancy dinner hosted by the South African embassy for South African China business people. And there were people from, you know, Golden Diamond Mines and South Africa, SAB Miller, the the beer company. And uh, and then there were a bunch of Chinese uh, companies, mostly state-owned, mostly involved in infrastructure and mining. And I mean, in the table, I, I, I was sort of there, sort of half working, and I got placed at a table with these guys from a steel company. And two of them had their wives who left uh, just after the main course was served and were replaced by two young ladies who, <laughs> you know, they were having quite a fine time with. And nobody, you know, bat an eyelid. And I, I mean, that's not 
the first time I've seen behavior like that. It, it certainly is a lot more acceptable than it would be in most parts of the United States. Is, do you think? I mean, uh, yes. how, how widespread is that? I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, in recent days in lieu of our uh, the U.S. national conversation about sexual harassment sure, and sexual har- yeah. um, assault. And I don't know if you guys read that very inflammatory article in the Global – was it Global Times or I think – China, China Daily. China China Daily. Daily. Uh, by the 60-year-old Canadian man who said there was no sexual harassment in China. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And, you I know, remember that. The backlash was was swift. But I was thinking how, again, the construct of the Chinese economy is such that, you know, if you you know, when you take on jobs like being, you know, a coquettish um, internet celebrity to if you voluntarily become, you know, a little third, a, a mistress as a woman, or one of these, you know, young ladies who kind of, you know, came, came to your table, you know, on the face of it, it feels like a choice, you know, that they've made. I mean, presumably nobody kind of handcuffed them and, and, and made them come. But the economic um, reality of China is such that if you're a young woman, you are taking stock of your own assets and you're thinking, well, how far can I get, you know, slaving away, you know, um, um, at a super competitive college if I'm able to get in? And, you know, what kind of jobs are going to be available to me? And how can I support myself and possibly, you know, um, uh, my loved ones? Versus, you know, probably coming to 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 a, to, to a fancy um, dinner party if you're good looking and you know earning a, a, you know a really quick buck and i think that you know that calculus is so important to understanding you know um modern chinese society because um you know, whether it's my piece on May 2 or my piece on Mistress Dispellers, they're not meant to, you know, invoke this kind of gawkery response where you're supposed to kind of point and finger the Chinese and say, you know, what are these weirdos doing? Why why are they making such um, a bizarre, uh, you know, choices that strip them of dignity? You right. have to look at the Chinese economy and what choices are available to, you know, to, you know, to second class citizens. And I think women in this case, you know, are, are, are cl- clearly do not have... Um, many of the advantages of men. Yeah, so there's kind of a generational issue here too, right? Because a lot of the women who are coming to these mistress dispellers seeking their services are maybe women of maybe my age, of women who are in their 40s or in their 50s, uh, whose husbands are, are now cheating. And they're cheating with people who are millennials. These are the, those, right. see, it's those damn millennials, those Joling Ho, the, the post 90s kids. Uh, and, and this is something that comes up in your piece. You, you, I can't remember which one it was who, who talks about them as being worldly and as right. being, as being really just sort of yeah, as worldly, shrewd, and, and they think competitive, of, right? Competitive, and they think of it as quite transactional. And you know, I was reminded of that interview when I was when I was talking to these internet celebrities, these Jiuling Ho, these post nineties internet celebrities, and how kind of they very much you know they um, you know exist in the same ecosystem in this sense. I mean, many of them, many of these, uh, you know, I was joking with you earlier that some of these internet um, celebrities uh, that you know they. They might, you know, be moonlighting as mistresses. Their looks are assets, and how do you monetize, that, you know, that asset? You have to have a certain kind of shrewd business acumen to know, you know, <laughs> to, 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 to turn it. Because, you know, if you're a young woman, you know, you're a depreciating asset, you know, with every day that passes by. So how do you maximize your gain while, you know, you know while, while you're able to? And, and, and I think that there is something generational that that 
that kind of ruthless desire to um, to gain financial security when you're still able. Yeah, to. I just don't buy the idea that it's baked into the Chinese character somehow that 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 pragmatism always takes such extreme forms. I just don't buy that. I I don't think that has always been the case. It it feels more recent to me. It feels like a a, a slip that that's only happened in the last you know. 10 well, I think ma- years. materialism has become more extreme than ever, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there, there's a real loss of mooring. There isn't, um, you know, in traditional Chinese society, when you did spend more time with your family, unlike, you know, poor Abner, you might have felt like there were fallbacks that, you know, you have a safety net of your family. But increasingly, I think the Chinese are become, you know, more alienated from that large web of family connections. And the only person you have to depend on is yourself. I think you're right. It's not like, you know, the post-90s. They're not a different species. I mean, they're not, you know, any weirder than any previous generations. Sure, sure. But I think there are economic realities that are being exerted, you know, that, that, that they're being affected by. We're going to run out of time before questions, but maybe I can pose a final one. Yeah, uh, you absolutely. know, um, a, an American reader of uh, your article, Mistress Dispellers, or perhaps uh, listening to our conversation, is going to come away with a very grim picture of the state of gender relations in China. You know, sex, love, and marriage are essentially transactional. Marriage is mainly instrumental. Uh, cheating is crazily rampant. Um, and you don't even cover some of the other vices that China is rife with. But um, surely there are some bright spots in in the institution of matrimony in China or not? Uh, bright spots in the institution <laughs> of matrimony. <anywhere>. Matrimony. <laughs> oh. um, I do think that uh, again and again, I hear about how committed parents are to their children. And I think that is both you know, very Confucian and also quite modern. And I'm oftentimes touched by the kind of sacrifices that uh, parents are willing to make so that the next generation can be brighter. And I think that is a source of hope. Yeah, they can endure each other and all their horrible, like, their teeth grinding and their snoring and, the, <laughs> and they're able to, to, to stay married just for the kids. Yay. Right. And what also, a bright spot. And, 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 and also... That um, is a bright spot, yeah, That actually. is a bright spot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. A lot of people in this country don't seem to be able to stay married for the kids. So. Yeah, that's, and this is true. Well, Jiayang, thanks so much. Uh, I mean, it, it thanks, and also thanks to the great people, to, to, to Mary and Alan, who isn't here tonight. But uh, thanks so much uh, for... Uh, the CKGSB for hosting us here tonight. Well, let's hear it for Jia Yang. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you and, so much. And, and Jia Yang, before we let you go, I mean, uh, we, we want to make some recommendations. And before we do that, let me remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Subscribe to our free daily email newsletter for a roundup of the most important China news. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is Sup China News. And if you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, please go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store. Now, on to recommendations. And uh, Jeremy, uh, well, even though we should probably have ladies first, well, you know, it's our, it's our habit. You start. Um, yes. Uh, I'd like to recommend buying a drone. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, I, I got a drone. You I got sold, a drone. I sold some Bitcoin and um, I, bu- I bought, a, bought a drone. That's uh, a, a sentence so, you couldn't have said before the year 2017. No, I know. It's the only thing I, I like about 2017. Bit, sold some Bitcoin and bought a drone. Wow, that's such a So I would recommend buying the DJI, DJI Phantom 4 drone, which is Made under $1,000 and a really great camera. Oh, that's the one they have at Costco, the $1,000 drone. Costco. Wow. There we go. Have yeah. you done anything with it? 
Um, yes, I've flown it around Nashville. <laughs> All right. I've made some really bad drone movies. Has it encountered any unfortunate birds? Not yet. Uh, a, 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 um, what did they call it? A turkey vulture got interested in it. One oh. day, but it left it alone. <laughs> a turkey vulture. He's got turkey vultures there in his holler in Nashville. Yep. All right. Jiang, you're up. Um, I was so encouraged by uh, cooking for um, SubChina um, <laughs> that uh, I um, would just like to recommend, I think, an underrated condiment condiment in Chinese cuisine. Um, this came to me yesterday when uh, at 2 a.m. I'm a night writer. I discovered I was very hungry and I discovered in my fridge <laughs> a single Chinese cabbage, some scallions and uh, um, rice noodles. That was all I had. And I was like, how do I make a meal out of this? And I, I was feeling pretty down until, and I, I don't even think, I think the only thing I had was like salt. It's like a North Chinese peasant in winter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's basically me at night, at 2 a.m. on any given night. You got that horn, that my time. And uh, I also ran out of um, black pepper. And, uh, you know, as anyone who's ever heard me talk on anything, I mean, you know, a, a spice maniac, I discovered I had like some just leftover white pepper from God knows when. And white pepper is so incredibly, Absolutely. I think, underrepresented. In it's, soups. It's so great for soups. soups. Yeah. It's, um, it's uh, I, I, you know, I really encourage all of you, you know, especially is, you know, we're in the midst of winter. If you want to make a hearty soup, include white pepper, white pepper powder to your mix. It's um, a warning. It's a little spicier than, uh, than, than black pepper. Gets in the back of the throat. It gets in the back of the throat. Right. But I think it's kind of fruitier. Internet tells me it's less complex, whatever that means. I think it's a lot more. I think it's a lot more complex. You know, you've heard it from a part-time food critic, um, <laughs> and uh, I really encourage you to kind of add All right. it. Um, white to- pepper. Yeah, we 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 were big white pepper users at, at the, the Guo household. So yeah. <laughs> It's too old. Um, okay, so I've got a couple of recommendations. Uh, one is a great piece in this week's New Yorkers by Gia Tolentino. Joel, uh, you know her, right? You know? I, I, I do. Okay, so yeah, so it's about millennials, right? So as a uh, millennial herself, as I said, you know, I cut them a little slack when writing about their own uh, generation. She does a pretty good job, uh, not just in skewering some of the more alarmist writing and silly moralizing that we've we're treated to constantly in the media, uh, but also in identifying what is actually wrong with the, the, the damn kids. Um, it, it's going to pair, I think, exceptionally well with, uh, for those of you who haven't yet read uh, Jiang's piece, it'll pair well with that piece. Uh, it, it made me think a lot about the parallels um, in in the U.S. and China between these post-90s in China and, and the millennials here. I also want to rec- recommend a book that I picked up uh, it's 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 great. Uh, I have a personal stake in the subject of this book. Uh, it's a book called Chinese Warlord, uh, The Career of Feng Yuxiang. Uh, Feng Yuxiang, uh, this book was written by a guy named James Sheridan, uh, who, whose books I've recommended before. But uh, Feng Yuxiang was known as the Christian general. Uh, he was a general in North China also known as the betraying general because he kept sort of flip-flopping in, in wars. But it happens that my maternal grandfather worked very closely with him as sort of uh, a strategic advisor, kind of an, an internal diplomat, a diplomatic advisor to him. Uh, so uh, that he's, he's, he's always been sort of among my, my favorite warlords. <laughs> uh, but what I really like about this book is that, you know, it, it, i just gotten through a couple of chapters, but in, in the introduction to it, he really lays the, 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 the he puts 
puts it in this historical context, and as you're reading it, you realize that uh, in periods of fragmentation like this, uh, in, in political uh, when, when when China is fragmented, whether it's in the Warring States period or in the Three Kingdoms or maybe in the the Five Dynasties period and Ten Kings, we, you see these features of the Chinese political culture sort of emerge in kind of the, the naked essence of them. I don't mean to sound too essentialistic here, but you, the, these are are definitely. Uh, recognizable features of, of Chinese politics. And Lucien Pai actually wrote about this in, in a book that he wrote about warlord politics. But the warlord period is really undervisited, I think, and people do, don't really understand it because, it, for, first of all, it's just so damn complicated. There's just so much to keep straight. But this book does a really admirable job. It's extremely lucid, very, very well written, very entertaining. And Feng Yixiang himself is quite a character, as you will you'll see, known for having baptized his troops with a fire hose before sending them into battle. So, anyway, uh, thank you once again to the great people here at CKGSB for hosting us. And thanks again to the Jiayang. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, we'll take your questions after a hearty round of applause for Jiayang and for CKGSB. Thank you. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.